Can the Heat continue to beat the Bucks? What kind of coach will Steve Nash be? Will the Rockets threaten the Lakers? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. It's been a minute, but we're back. I am here with Brady Klopfer of SB Nation fame and of the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. So, Brady, thanks for hopping on with me. Always my pleasure, Coach. Awesome. Well, we're sitting here recording this on a Thursday afternoon, having just gone through, um, I think, two straight days of some of the most confounding basketball we've seen in a little while. Um, let's talk about that. We're going to talk about Steve Nash. I don't want to forget about that, but I feel like, you know what? People want to hear a little bit about what's happened in these games first. So what were your what's your thoughts? Let's go with the Heat Bucks first, uh, now that the Heat are up 2-0. Um, what is your immediate thoughts on what that series is looking like to you? Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of going back and forth as to whether I should be impressed with the job that the Heat are doing or disappointed in the job that the Bucks are doing. Um, I <laughs> think good. ultimately it's it's both. Um, but, you know, when whenever we podcasted before the bubble even started, we talked about some of the playoff issues that Milwaukee had last year and how we weren't particularly convinced that those issues weren't going to rear their heads again this postseason. And we're seeing a lot of the same stuff, and it just it's not the same team that we saw during the regular season. It it feels like they are more easily game-planned against. Uh, Eric Spolster is obviously a tremendous defensive coach, uh, and it feels like Miami is just... Their defense is attacking Milwaukee, and Milwaukee doesn't seem to have any way of solving problems and doesn't even seem to have a second option on a lot of plays. Uh, And you add that to the fact that they seem to be resting their best players for weirdly long stretches of time and putting out confounding lineups. And it just, it, it it doesn't look good on their end. I I agree. I've been really confused by the Budenholzer defense for a couple of years now because it's been so good, yet what I see are some real issues. Now, I think the biggest issue we've talked about uh, ad nauseum is they will overhelp to stop the uh, the ball handler from getting to the basket, and I get it. You want to wall the the, the paint off, don't let them you know score there. But it means you're going to leave open shooters, and they do that more than anybody else does in the league. The there was a rumor going on, and I've been trying to get some second spectrum data to kind of confirm this that you know they were only helping off of the bad shooters, and so the volume of of open shots from behind the arc were because it was you know bad shooters. But I can't, I haven't quite sussed that out, and certainly when you watch Miami, they don't have a lot of bad shooters. And this was going to be a thing we were I really had my eyes open on uh, looking at because uh, what was interesting is in game one, they beat them up in the paint. They scored a ton of points in the paint. It wasn't working how they were helping off. But you know, you had to imagine, okay, they got that one, but you had to imagine that going forward, they're going to have at least one other game where they start raining down threes. And that's what happened in game two. Outscored them by 10 and if you outscore the other team by 10 three-pointers, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Now, that's the weird thing, right? They they had the game, and then it kind of almost fell apart for them at the very end, which is really interesting. So if had the Bucks stolen that, uh, maybe we wouldn't be talking in these kind of uh, dire terms for them. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of the, you know, the hot and cold of a team that relies a lot on, on the three-point ball or a team that has a lot of three-point shooters. And we've seen this so many times uh over the last few years with Houston, 
where just the variance of shooting that many threes, there are some games and some stretches where it doesn't matter what the other team does. You can't be beat because you're shooting so many and you get hot. And then you go through stretches. You know, obviously, Houston's notorious over 27 stretch in that mm-hmm. game against the Warriors in the conference finals uh, where you just give away games no matter how well you're playing in other areas. And we kind of saw both ends of that a little bit with Miami. Um they kind of jumped out to a lead because they were hitting a lot and and Milwaukee was giving them those shots. Uh, and then that lead kind of started to disintegrate as the variance kind of started to swing the other way. And I think they have to feel pretty fortunate to to have come away with that win. And now they're in the driver's seat. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it was a roller coaster because they really should have won by 10 or 12 and just, you know, put it that way. They had they had a six, eight point lead. It should have turned into fouls. And they would have made their free throws. And that was it. Um, the, the, one of the things that jumped out at me, I was kind of like hate editing the uh, video today, uh, going <laughs> through now, you know, cause, cause the coaching, some of the coaching was really confounding. And I thought in the middle of this thing, I'm like, gosh, Spolcher is just killing Budenholzer. It's not even close, but then <laughs> things changed. So here was the one notable thing I noticed about Budenholzer that really, um, is troubling. They, if you remember, they uh, with about 17 seconds left, they had a review of an out of bounds play where the ball got you know uh, knocked out of bounds. Clearly, it was going to be back in the Bucks' hands. Uh, but while they had the review, which was like at least three or four commercials long, uh, they had a timeout. They were drawing up a play, and you, when we came back, Budenholzer wouldn't come out of the timeout. He wouldn't come out of the huddle, and he ultimately gets a delay of game call. And it wasn't even announced on the TV. Like, like in the play by play, you see it. And he's running around and it was like for a second there, I almost thought like they had put Kyle Korver in for that. They wanted to put him in for that play. And for a second, I thought maybe they didn't tell him to check in. They totally blew that. And then they needed to call a timeout after this long timeout they had um, to get him in the game. It turns out you can sub in after a review of a, of a ref. That's how I thought maybe maybe that was the problem. But no, he could have subbed in. I just think that he... He whatever he tried to draw up in that whole in the first part of that timeout, he just didn't do it. He was like just confused, and um, you know that just reflects poorly. I think players pick up on that. Now, in his defense, the play they finally did run after those two consecutive timeouts and whatever uh, got him a dunk from Giannis. But I think it was much more like Jimmy Butler beginning the process of losing his mind, <laughs> which is the only way you can describe it. He he kind of like wet the bed. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. What do you think about the play? So as they double team him after that dunk and, and he throws the ball back, what, what were you, what was going through your mind about Jimmy Butler's play in that moment? I was confused in a way. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it felt a little bit Jimmy Butler ish in that. I mean, he is just this player who is capable of so much. And there are times where I feel like he is so confident in himself as being the star that he tries to do too much and it ends up hurting the rest of the team or ends up putting himself in a bad position because he's kind of focused on, I got to do this right now and kind of forgetting that, well, this play might go on for more than two or three seconds (laughs) uh, and you might put yourself in a bad position by trying to, to win here. Uh, And, you know, most of the time he gets away with it, but he, he is it like a defender who who gambles a lot, uh, who traps and doubles sometimes that are rather unconventional. Uh, and he's so good and athletic that he really gets away with it a lot of times. Uh, now, but when it doesn't work, you, you're like, man, what are you doing? Yeah. But now what about the play when he gets the ball in the corner on the out of bounds play and they trap him? Um, and if you might remember, he throws the ball back 
towards Goran Dragic toward the basket, and he you know goes right to Brook Lopez, and he and he scores. Um, you played basketball in high school, right? Yeah. Um, did you ever learn in high school, or maybe even before that, that when you're trapped in the corner there, you never throw the ball back to your own basket? Did you ever? Does that sound familiar? If I had a nickel for every time my coach yelled at someone on our team to not throw it under your basket when you're trapped <laughs> or falling out of bounds, I would be very rich. We were we were taught basically soccer style. Throw it up the sideline as far as you can. Wow. Do it. Throw it into the bleachers if you have to. Just don't throw it under your own basket. Right. At least you have a chance. If it turns it over, you get a chance to play defense. But, um, I mean, listen, Goran Dragic froze under the basket. He should have been at least, you know, five feet closer to Jimmy so that if it, he's throwing it to him, he can maybe get it before Brooke Lopez does. But then nobody, there was two players in the front court that had just abandoned the guys inbounding on the heat. No outlet for him. So I don't even care that we ended up seeing uh, George Hill out of bounds touching the ball, like in the, in the middle of the trap. That should have been a whistle and heat ball again. But the other problem is they had two timeouts left. Eric Spolstra yeah. is four feet away from all this is going on. He could call the timeout at any moment in there. He had four seconds while this was all going on where he realized, you know what? They caught us with our pants down. We were not ready for the press, which is already bad. He did not call a timeout. I mean, it was confounding, dumbfounding, just bad coaching. And it's, I hate to say it because Spolstra has been doing a masterful job, but that's like, that's crap in the bed uh, in a way that you almost think he should have been punished with a loss on that one to learn. Yeah, I mean, honestly, some of these, some of these mistakes that both the coaches and players have been making, they're just, they're almost summer league esque. Like they're, they're just the kind of things that you expect when, when teams aren't really that invested in winning and they're just kind of playing. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, the myriad distractions that have been going on on and off the court, or if it's the fact that they've still only been playing basketball for, you know, a few weeks since since restarting games. I don't know what it is, but it and maybe it's just recency bias. But to me, it feels like there are more inexcusable mistakes from both coaches and players you know uh, what it, than what it, you would expect. You know what it might say is it might say that the that the whatever pressure you might feel like on being with being on the road and the crowd yelling and that whole thing. That might not really be the root of the pressure. The pressure might still really, really exist, and that you, you still are prone to make those mistakes, even though it's a quad, you know the background's different and it's like a lot more uh, almost informal, right? So that that that's to me what happened. Like it was just like they just blanked and they didn't realize what was going on. So meanwhile, you have a couple of these calls. Then that we go back and forth with uh, Middleton shooting a three. Now Dragic again. Everyone, people want. I guess the Heat fans are very loud on Twitter. They wanted to defend him and say he's straight up. But like you never should be in a situation. Right. Like, I'm sure maybe you even heard this in high school. Like, let me tell you a story about this high school. Ready? Um, I'm on my we're playing uh, our, our bitter rival down the street. I mean, like, it, what's the rivalry? Ohio State and Michigan, like that kind of rivalry, probably um, maybe even worse. And so um, we, we're like, we've run the table in league. No one has won league undefeated forever, right? And we've done this. It's our last game on the road at this school, like our, whatever. And we're up by one. And uh, they inbound the ball. You know, no more timeouts left in the backcourt or about, you know, three-quarter court. And the guy throws it. And on his follow-through of a baseball pass, he, like, hits me in, like, the, che- the neck and the f- head area. And out of the, we storm the court out of nowhere. The referee comes running in and clears everybody off and gives him two free throws to win the game. Now he bricked them both. Wow. 
He bricked them both. So like the basketball guys must have been protecting me because they knew that it was okay. But here's what I learned. I should never have been even that close to him, right? And I was like, I kind of did what the Dragic thing did, but like, I didn't even put my hands up. I, I was just sort of in the area. You know what I mean? I was like, whatever. So, uh, that's probably the lesson that Dragic needed to learn. I suppose you can't really put yourself in a situation. But again, then again, Ronnie came on the show earlier on the video and you know, it's a foul. I mean, what did you think about that? Yeah, it was one of those plays where like, as it happened live, I'm screaming at the refs for calling it. Um, oh. and then you see the replay and I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, you, you have to, um, I, it's it's so hard at the end of a game because it's, it's it just doesn't sit right with you in a way like you don't want the game decided like that but you also don't want the game decided by not calling a foul that should have been called so there's really there's there's no no good solution there and ultimately it was a foul and i think you know with Dragic i think part of the issue was I don't think he was entirely aware of where he was on the court. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't realize how far past the three-point line he had gotten. Because Middleton really, even though Dragic was moving forward into it, Middleton really jumped forward on that shot because he was so deep. And I think Dragic thought that they were a little closer to the three-point line and that jump shot was going to be a little bit more straight up than the kind of lean-in heave that you get from like a 28 footer from someone not named curry or lillard and you know what's interesting about that move forward because ronnie made a big point about how vertical middleton was he wasn't really drifting much and and i I think that that's true too but i think what you're also trying to say is he was help it wasn't his man he's coming over from another player Butler yes. was there. Butler kind of, you know, did his thing, which was made him made him kind of take a dribble and have to pull up, and then just, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting near you for a foul. So Butler actually got his head back on for the right for that play, um, and then but Dragic lost it. And again, I think all that momentum of pulling him up, um, you know, he gets the left foot down, but the right foot keeps stepping forward, and that's what that, fo- you know, it's probably four inches, but it's a, you know, there's a collision. And don't forget, you have to let the guy land, and um, yeah, that didn't he, you know, I don't really think he let him land per se. Um, and so, yeah, you have to kind of go with it, but, uh, you know, we've been saying for how many years that the refs swallow their whistles and never call those fouls, right? We'd see that all the time. And then here we, here we go. So that brings us to the last play, which is Jimmy Butler. Like, you know, they didn't, by the way, this whole thing exonerates, uh, Spolster a little bit too, because they didn't really run. I mean, they had about four seconds to do something and I really wasn't impressed with what they got. But that said, they got the ball in bounds, which is going to come up later in another game. But that was important. At least he got the ball in bounds. Uh, but I, I, I have to imagine that Mark Adams, uh, wait, Mark Adams, is that the referee's name? Um, Anyway, I have to imagine that he was thinking about the other play that he called because it happens. It's the same ref, right? How is that possible? But it is. Um, he calls a foul out of nowhere on, on on Giannis drifting into him. What did you think about that call, which ultimately won the game for the Heat? Felt pretty similar to me in that you don't really want to see such minimal contact aside a game, but I mean, he's up in the air and he made contact. I I. You just can't, you can't touch a shooter when they're in the air. Um, yeah. You know I don't think that it impacted the shot at all, but you can't touch a shooter when they're in the air. That's, that's defense 101. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the, the light touch almost is what allowed him to 
kind of get his body around so there wasn't a bigger uh, collision with the body. So, you know, without that touch, it would have really been a, a big thing. Now, the interesting thing is apparently they, the rule is different now. Ronnie was trying to tell me earlier that um, before, if, okay, so let's just pretend that he didn't give him anywhere to land and he shoots the ball and the buzzer sounds. And then Jimmy Butler lands all on top of uh, Giannis, right? And, and he almost turns an ankle like it's that provocative. Uh, in the Back in the day, that's a foul. You have to let the play complete all the way through. But apparently they changed that where if that foul and that contact happens after the buzzer, it's not a foul anymore. So Giannis was about two-tenths of a second from getting, you know, being free and clear. And that's probably part of the, what they were doing with the replay was, A, did he get the shot off, which he did with like 0.2 seconds left. And then B, um, did that a contact occur to his ribs with the hand by Giannis before the zeros? And I think it, it again, barely did by a fingernail. And in theory, had it happened, you know, an, a tenth of a second later, then Giannis would have been, you know, they would have been overtime. So it's really fascinating how that all plays out. How do you feel about that rule? Oh, I think here's the interesting thing. I almost feel like the way this play played out, that I'd be okay with it if they didn't. If they said, "Oh, it's after that," you know, buzzer, it's okay. But I do feel like it should have been the foul if, if he lands on the guy. I mean, that that's part of the play. I feel like that should be completed. The jump shot's a jump shot. Um, so I guess I'm sort of being, um, I'm sort of riding both ends here because I'm sort of saying both, but. Um, I, I feel like you should, the landing part, I don't know. Certainly if I were the guy shooting and the guy got underneath me like that and I would want the foul no matter what happened. Um, and, and you know, but it, it won't be one now, uh, apparently. So what do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't like that they changed that. Um, I don't like rules that allow you to kind of change the way you play the game depending on how much time is left. And so for me, like, I don't know if players will actually be able to adjust to do this, but in theory, if someone's taking a shot under a second left, you can close out just straight into them. And as long <laughs> as you don't make the contact till the buzzer goes, then it's fine. And to me, you know, that's not a good defensive play because it's not a play you could make for the first 47 minutes and 59 and a half seconds. You would have to close out to the side of them and not touch them. Um, so... Yeah, I, I kind of feel like the the play has to conclude. You have to be able to defend the shot in its entirety, even if the shot yeah. goes into the buzzer. I agree. I, I like that way you say that. Now, Ronnie did mention something about like you know if there's a flagrant, there might be a rule that allows for that, uh, and they might have thought about that. Like a guy's just going to tackle the guy and kill him, um, <laughs> and and they might have said, okay, if it's that flagrant, then these, then they will still call it. I don't know. We got we got to do some more research into that. But uh, either way, uh, interesting uh, way of ending the game. I don't have a problem with the way it ended, only because to me it felt like the Heat should have won anyway. Like it was their game. Um, they're causing a lot of problems with the for the Bucks defense, which doesn't seem to want to adjust. Um, and I think what the greater context of this is, is that, you know, first of all, what we're seeing with, with the honest, like the MVP award is a regular season award. The coach of the year is a regular season award. And I think that's a capital R, capital S, regular season. And I feel like this is what they've been working towards. And my spidey sense, it tingles whenever I'm watching the regular season and then scratching my head saying, how are they the number one defensive rated team? What I'm probably really you know, filtering that through is, this is not going to work in the playoffs in a seven-game series. 
and we're seeing it again happen. Um, I'm not sure what's more concerning, the defense or Giannis's lack of skill in a way. You know, he's kind of lacking skill um, that can be, uh, you know, addressed by the defense. I, I think we're, we're really starting to see. He even, you know, the, de- the free throws were amazing. He was 9 for 11, but then he missed uh, the last two that were the biggest ones. It's like, what's the point of all that if you're not going to make the ones you need uh, and I think that they're much more cavalier about following him because they don't, they really don't care. It, every, every free throw he makes is a more likely he's going to miss the next one. They'll just keep doing it. So, um, does that resonate with you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think when it's an important game, you see this almost domino effect when you, ha- when that type of an issue crops up because you see, like you said, the, the Miami defense gets to be a little bit more aggressive because they're not worried about fouling him. And that in turn makes Giannis a little bit more passive because he doesn't want to be fouled. And it just, it, it kind of snowballs in. And even though they kind of closed the gap down the stretch, the execution down the stretch in particular has just looked really poor to me from Milwaukee. And, and I think a lot of it is snowballing from that, that the, Miami's defense can be more aggressive and Giannis is more passive as a result. And it's just, it goes back and forth and back and forth like that. Right. And they got rid of the hack-a-shack pretty much where you had to follow him. The guy has the ball or he's in the play. You know, Giannis is going to be in the play. And if he's not going to be in the play, now you have your MVP who is relegated to playing like a power forward in 1993 and um, just screening, screening, screening. And then, you know, maybe gets an offensive rebound or something. It's crazy. Like, that's not what the role of an MVP is supposed to be, at least. And um, I don't see how that ever changes for him now without the ability to shoot the ball from outside of eight or nine feet. And um, without being able to shoot free throws, it's a real it's a real conundrum um, in a way that they have this, you know, unique talent who can dominate, um, but really doesn't translate to the playoffs. So uh, I, I don't know. I, and I like John, I like Giannis. I think he's I like I like the way he plays. And I think he's, it's um, what is it? I mean, I certainly have done. There's no shortage of videos I've done that have like celebrated how good he is. And especially because he was passing even more than he is now. Um Anyway, great kid, eager to learn, wants to work hard, um, but he's just limited. And, you know, the, the sad thing about this, we, I think we talked about this before, was just like the fact that he did shoot well. He did have a jump shot when he came in the league. So, you know, now before we talk about OKC and Houston in the Game 7, do we want to, you know, drop a couple minutes on uh, Steve Nash and the hiring by the Brooklyn Nets? Yeah, let's do it. Let, let's break up the games with some, some news. So this was a shocker, wasn't it, would you say? Big time. I, uh was rather perplexed when I got that notification on my phone. I think if I didn't have tweet notifications turned on and I just saw that scrolling, I would have assumed that it was from a, a fake account. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's very rare in this era of the NBA to have a big move that doesn't have any smoke preceding it. Like we, we never heard that Steve Nash was even interested in any coaching position let alone that he was being targeted by the nets uh and that's just i can't remember the last time there was a big piece of nba news that got broke without anyone other than the people who were in the know and couldn't report on it hearing anything about it right i mean maybe Kawhi was you know kept that pretty quiet and i think i think there's connection there I think that if, if the Clippers had ever let it leak that they that Kawhi was leaning towards them or whatever, any kind of information there or any of the teams, then he would have probably said, I'm not going there. He's like, it's up to you guys to be able to keep all this you know, quiet. I think that might have been the same thing with Nash because it sounds like with the reporting, they've been trying to woo him for a while. 
for weeks or whatever that is. So that didn't come out. Like, that's pretty impressive. And it might have even been where Nash is like, I don't want any public pressure. I better not see this in the whatever. Or they, even they, he might not have even said that. It just might have been inferred, like, we better not. We don't want to put any public pressure on him to make, make a decision easily. Um, so that's what happened. And, you know, it, it's not like he hasn't coached at all. He's been kind of popping around the league uh, and, like, you know, jumping in and coaching. I, I've seen him coach at an NBA practice. And... Um, I, I remember walking away just being really impressed just from watching him do like a 20 minute segment on the pistol action and watching how he was teaching angles and little tiny details, which for me, for a coach, um, it's the detail oriented guys that I think I respect the most. So those are the guys who really see the game and see little stuff that they can then point out. Now, obviously, it's the communication stuff, which we'll talk about in a second, too. But if you have the eye to begin with, then you're already you know raring to go. There's plenty of NBA coaches who are probably more big picture guys. You know, maybe the assistants yeah. are the ones who are going to do some of the minutia. But um, I think it really helps when you have that kind of uh, attention to detail. Yeah, completely agree. So, yeah. I mean, like, even just the kind of stuff where, uh, the, the you know, the drag screen out of, out of pistol would be, you know, the ball screen really quickly as you transition. You know, he was just showing the big men, little, little subtle, like, you know, you, if you jab this way first, your man's going to have to move that way. And then you break back to set up that screen. Now he's behind and now you have more room. Like, I'd never seen that. And I'd seen people teach drag screens and pistol, like, you know, for years. Never had really heard that. But you know why he knows that? Well, it's because he's the guy who ran it so well, right? And everyone runs that offense now. And everyone runs pieces of that offense. So um, I'm really excited. I mean, you know, what do, what, do, what do you know about him as far as, like, you know, the communication and, um, and culture that, you know, the, all the big touchstone words we use now? Well, I think there, there are kind of two big things or three big things, I should say, that, that immediately came to mind with me. Uh, the first was everything that I heard from his time with the Warriors as a, as a consultant and occasional um, coach was that the players absolutely adored him. And that they got along well with him and that they loved when he came in and they learned so much from him. And that Kevin Durant in particular got along incredibly well with him. Um, so, you know, I don't want to speculate and say that, you know, this was a move that Durant demanded or anything like that. But I would be shocked if Durant vouching for Nash was not a huge part of this decision making process for Brooklyn. Um and then the second thing that really stands out to me is the, really the first thing that I thought of when I saw this news was a quote from Steve Kerr when Nash first came on board with the Warriors. And Kerr told reporters that he can't – that he, Steve Kerr, can't talk to Steph Curry and Kevin Durant as well as a player like Steve Nash can because Kerr was a reserve who couldn't do much on the court. And Nash was a superstar – who understood all that comes with being a superstar and he could communicate with Curry and Durant in a way that no one else could. And I don't think he just meant from a basic management motivation communication standpoint. I think he also meant that minutia that you're talking about where Nash had a larger role and he had to find those tiny areas where he could create an advantage that favored him and his team and he had to leverage some of his weapons to create other weapons and those are the kinds of things that players like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving not only need to hear but they're thirsty to hear that they're thirsty to find someone who is on their level as a talent who can help get them to 
an even further level where they can manipulate defenses a little bit further. And I think that Nash, like you said, he he just knows the details so well, and he knows them at a superstar individual level, which I think is a whole nother element as well into that. Um, such a great point. Really great point. Uh, and I, I could sense that, too, seeing that on the court. Um and, you know, these the players themselves are, you know, they're human and they have different ways of uh, communicating and, and existing. And certainly, uh, if of all people I would understand that would be Nash and would be able to sort of be able to uh, ex- explain his expectations and know what he should expect versus what he can't get uh, out of those guys and know that it's important that starts from the top down. So, yeah, that, that's going to be a, a really uh, that'll help him going forward, I think. Um you know, as far as getting in there and, and eliminating any kind of awkwardness in the beginning or getting to know everybody. Um, but I anticipate they'll put together like a great staff as well that'll help support him, just like we saw Steve Kerr did. I mean, Steve Kerr had a murderer's row of great assistants with him, um, and that also really helped. So that, that I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with that because obviously they're going to be a lot better than they were, which was a playoff team. Um, although they have some roster stuff to deal with, I suppose, and to some degree. And I know, uh, by the way, Kevin Durant absolutely had say in this. You know what I mean? Not that he had final say, maybe, but he had say. Kyrie for sure Big had time. say. So let's not pretend that they weren't like in, completely involved. And so, uh, so we'll see. I'm anxious to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. And, and, and just one last point. Like you said, I think he is going to put together a, a really strong cast of assistant coaches i know jacques vaughn is already you know on as lead assistant and that's a that's a huge one uh for brooklyn and and the one of the things that's always impressed me about nash is that he has he has that humility that balances his cockiness that he also has but he has that humility where he doesn't need to be the smartest guy in the room and that really plagues a lot of coaches who need to be the smartest guy in the room they need their assistants to be not as smart as them in any area and they need to just kind of be the top dog at all times. And I really think that Nash understands that he, he can hire assistants who know more about certain elements of the game than he does. And that that is a good thing, not a bad thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, l- let's spend a couple minutes as we wrap up uh, talking about OKC Houston, because that was as insane as they can come. Um, you know, we've seen some dumb things happen. We saw Bill- Jimmy Butler throw the ball back and that was confounding. Um, I'm already blanking on what I saw the night before, uh, which was really dumb. I'll think about it in a second. But uh, but we did have some interesting stuff happen in the last minute even with uh, with OKC Houston. Um, now, you know, I've kind of taken – I haven't really said a lot about Russ recently just in the last, like, year or two just because it's it just is, it's just frustrating to have to deal with uh, people yelling at me. But, um, you know, I think he's revealing himself in these, in these games, game six and game seven, uh, you know, ill-advised shots, really troublesome stuff. I mean, he shoots a, a Euro off-foot lefty, uh, lefty hook shot, left foot jump, left hand hook with a shooter right in his face with seven seconds on the clock. Didn't even look at Harden at all to maybe give it to him. Um, that was frustrating, but what, what's your overall sense, at least, of of his play and how this works with Houston versus maybe even the CP3? I mean, I, I, I see the same things that, that you're seeing, and, and to be honest, I'm not surprised at all. Um, this was an issue that I expected from the start, from the moment they traded him, and it flew under the radar, I think, a little bit during the regular season. But I think it was an issue during the regular season that there were 
you know, we've talked a lot about how there's there's the difference between the regular season and the postseason, and and one of that main one of those main differences is that in the postseason you really start to game plan for teams a little bit more, and you really start to target weaknesses and attack those weaknesses, uh, and you don't see that as much during the regular season. But there are few there are few times where you do, and this is a weird game to highlight, but on Christmas the Rockets got beat pretty handily by the Warriors who were without Steph Curry, without Klay Thompson, might have even been without D'Angelo Russell that game, not sure. Um, and it, it wasn't even that close of a game, but the Warriors, you could see they were already out of the playoff picture and they were going hard at Houston. They, they, they were treating it like a postseason game. And what they did was they tried to take the ball out of James Harden's hands and force Russell Westbrook to just be a one-man wrecking crew. And Houston doesn't function that well when when that happens. And, you know, Harden was a little bit more passive than he should have been. Um, he wasn't having a good game. Uh, this is going back to game seven now. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, I, I don't think, did a good job of getting the ball in Harden's hands. But on the whole, Oklahoma City kind of made it clear that if someone's going to beat us, it's going to be Russell Westbrook, not James Harden. And he's just too inefficient. I, 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 there's no other way around it. He's a tremendous talent. He's mesmerizing to watch. He's just too inefficient. If you if you put the ball in his hands and say, you go out and win this game, he he can't do it at, at that. Without a jumper, without the proper decision-making, he's just... I don't. I don't mean to go too hard on him here, but he's just too inefficient of a player. And if you're going to target him and make him beat you instead of James Harden, I just don't see Houston having a clear path to wins. Right, that, and that's a good point because remember he was nine of twenty for the game from the field, which is like okay, but he's one for eight from the in the fourth quarter. And again, when you what, what's what good is all the good stuff you're doing in the first three quarters when you can't get it done when you need to get it done. Um, and you know it's just frustrating to watch only because you we, you know you'd much rather have Harden controlling the the, the the possession at least, and then you know maybe either passing it off and letting somebody else get the shot that he helped create. Um, but that also I, I just you know I'm remiss because the dumb thing I mentioned earlier I've seen some dumb dumb things in the end of games now it wasn't necessarily Russ uh, it was but it was CP3. And I was glad to see CP3 have some success and actually play well in this game and, or, you know, do enough things where it seemed like they were going to be able to win this. Uh, you know, he was three for four in the fourth quarter, but uh, he had two turnovers. Uh, but the final possession was really concerning to me because, uh, and this might happen to you in high school too, but, you know, sometimes I've noticed that high school coaches don't always grasp this. And that could very well be because of the timeout situation. You can advance the ball. I don't know. But the bottom line is if you're down – and there's 20 seconds left, you can't waste any time. You must get the best shot you can as quickly as you can. You need to have more possessions. You can't just dribble the ball down. Well, the the, uh, the Thunder get the ball back with 24 seconds to go. Uh, the shot clock's at 23, you know, so it's about a second difference. Um, they bring the ball up, and they get it to Chris Paul, and he, run, he runs like six, seven seconds down on top. Um, you know, you think that they would have liked to have a few more seconds at the end of that game? Back? Yeah. So it, this is weird to me that he didn't know that and, you know, felt like he needed to take all that time and kind of get organized, whatever. And then it ultimately throws the ball almost away anyway. Like, I don't know what his plan was. It wasn't the call. It wasn't the play. Um, ask me how many timeouts the Thunder had left. How many, th- how many timeouts did the Thunder have, Coach? Two. 
So, you know, if you're not going to go like that, and like once you got past half court and you're like, okay, we're not doing it, call timeout, run out of play out of bounds. Like that's that would have been the other thing to do. You have two of them. Just, you know, confounding. And by the way, that doesn't have to be Chris Paul. That could be Billy Donovan calling it from his spot. So, um, you know, it, it's, again, the, the heat of the moment, the pressure of the moment doesn't have to be exacerbated by the crowd and being on the road and all that kind of stuff. It exists no matter where you are and no matter the setting. And uh, I just feel like there's, there's hardly any other explanation for it besides they just, they, of course they know to do that. They would have, they should have known they, not to do what they did. And, and they did it anyway. And uh, it, it cost them. I, I, I like the underdog story, which is probably why it seems like I'm rooting for the Thunder. Um, but uh, I do feel like what you, how you mentioned, the, 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 the Rockets are exposed. But then again, maybe it doesn't matter. They could come back in, get hot, and erase all these issues like they do normally with the three-pointer. And then suddenly the, the, the foundation is doesn't matter what the foundation is because they can overcome that with uh, some hot shooting. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, it's going to make a very fascinating second-round series. Um, especially with the way the Lakers have been playing or, or not playing. Um, that's, that's, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I don't, I don't really know what's going to, what's going to happen in that series, but, um, just like you said, just bringing in that variance and that ability to get hot, um, makes the second round series, I think a lot more interesting than it would have been had the thunder one, even though I was secretly rooting for that underdog story as well. And thought it would be pretty funny if, the Thunder finally made it out of the first round in the post-Kevin Durant era, and only after they got rid of Westbrook, that would have been a pretty hilarious storyline. But Oh, yeah. You know what? That's that's true, too. It would have been devastating for Russ, I think, uh, really. Yes. That would have really written uh, an epitaph on his on his tombstone. That would have been bad. So no one wishes that kind of bad. But then also, it's kind of bad for CP3 because it's just another example where you know he didn't come through. Um, and, and he could have, uh, just, you know, it's troubling, but you know what? It's, we're all human. Um, I suspect that the Lakers, you know, we were all saying, oh, CJ and Dame, no one can guard them on the Lakers. And look, you know, they won four one. Of course, CJ had a broken back and Dame ultimately missed the game because of a injury. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Harden and Westbrook are, are healthy. You know, Russ seems like he's now back. Um, so it's a different animal altogether. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen to the Lakers, but, uh, I, I'm certainly interested in, I'll, I'll watch the games. How about you? I will, I will definitely be watching those games and very curious to see. I'll ver- be very curious to see what Anthony Davis does in that, in that series, because that to me feels like you wanted to go to a, to a team where you could win a championship. You wanted to go to a team where you could flex your muscle and prove just how good you are. Well, now you're going up against a team that doesn't play anyone within six inches of your height. You got to go out there and just, he has to dominate this series, in my opinion. And they can win, the Lakers can win even if he doesn't. But uh, to me, this series might show us whether Anthony Davis is that tier one superstar or, or kind of the tier two superstar. Yeah, and by the way, I kind of think that the Lakers could lose if he dominates. I think he could have a great game and doesn't necessarily propel them over the edge either. So uh, yeah. it's a conundrum. Again, the Lakers, I keep saying this, I'm going to say it every time. Who's their fourth best player? And when you get that answer and you think, okay, is that a title-winning team? But that's the fourth best player? And I, I just don't know because obviously the top two get you a long way. But um, you will have to find out. And the answer is Caruso, by the way, I think. And, that's, that's, and by the way, I love Caruso, but I don't think he's the fourth best player on a title team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're a team that arguably has two first best players on a championship team. 
And they don't have a third best player or a fourth best player or a fifth best player on a championship right. team or a sixth best, I think. Um, yeah. So it's very interesting. All right. Well, we'll have to find out. But Brady, thanks for, uh, for doing this and, and, and letting me uh, event and, uh, <laughs> and maybe solve some problems, some issues. And we'll figure it out. Hopefully we'll see some smarter basketball in the second round. Uh, and Let's we'll be hope. back again next week, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, sports fans. At B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Brady? <laughs>